From the historic campus of Hillsdale College in Hillsdale, Michigan, where the good, the true, and the beautiful are taught, nurtured, and honored, this is the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour, bringing the activity and education of the college to listeners across the country. Theorists of negotiation say that people tend to choose among clearly defined alternatives. So if one of the alternatives is humiliation and the other is escalation, you want a third alternative, and that's what theorists of negotiation call an off-ramp. This is your host, Scott Bertram, and that's Christopher Caldwell, contributing editor at the Claremont Review of Books and here on Hillsdale's campus as part of our CCA lecture series on Russia, speaking specifically on American foreign policy and Russia today. We'll talk more with Christopher in just a bit. First, we're joined by Dr. David Azarad. He is assistant professor and research fellow at Hillsdale in D.C., and also the man who guides the conversation in the newest Hillsdale online course, The Real American Founding, A Conversation. Dr. Azarad, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be with you again, Scott. Dr. Azarad, it's called The Real American Founding. Why real? What is? What has been or what is fake, so to speak, about the ideas that have come beforehand. Yeah. So, um, there, there, it's real in two ways. One is not, uh, let me start with the original one, is that I find a lot of the people who get the founding, i.e. not the woke dismissal, the founders were racist and sexist and homophobes, the people who like the founding, good scholars, I just find that they make it a bit boring. You know, they present the founding as a bunch of guys in powdered wigs who were talking about separation of powers, and it's all well and good. But there's something explosive, revolutionary, uh, philosophically bold about the founding that comes out in the conversations with Professor West and that we recapture. So the one way in which it's real is that it's not just the kind of tame, domesticated, founding that you get in a lot of circles. And then the other way, which I mentioned briefly, is that this is not, you know, the modern scholarship on the founders, which reduces Thomas Jefferson to his alleged affair with Sally Hemings, and there's no definitive proof, which just says, oh, George Washington, all you need to know is that he was a slave owner. I mean, we don't really, in a certain sense, waste a lot of time refuting this nonsense because it's been done many times before, including by Tom West in one of his first books called Vindicating the Founders. So what this really is is just bringing the teaching of the founding to life in the 21st century, recovering its greatness and putting it in conversation with um, the big currents in modern America to highlight its perennial relevance. Dr. Thomas West is the teacher. He's the one answering your questions and taking part in the conversation in this online course, The Real American Founding. Uh, His book, The Political Theory of the American Founding, is also the title of the first lecture in this piece. How would you briefly outline what is the the underpinning of the theory of the founding? Um, I mean, it's basically, you know, natural rights republicanism. The underlying principles are articulated with really luminous clarity and concision in the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. The idea is that 
human beings are equal, so we're not going to have an aristocracy. There are no master classes. No one has blue blood, uh, no superior races. The idea that they possess rights and that the task of the government is primarily to secure the rights of the individual, that the government is not giving you rights, that you possess this, possess them independently, and that therefore that they act as a check on government. Uh, and then look, how you build the government from that, you can go in any number of directions. You know, we first had the Articles of Confederation that didn't work out. Then we had our Constitution, which uh, is still around 235 years later. So uh, the political theory is, is also the structure of, of government. But what we're really focusing on in the class are, you know, how, I guess, the pillars of the founders' political order. So they're teaching on the family, they're teaching on foreign policy, on immigration, on law and order, um, on economics, uh, their views on what we today would call social issues. You know, what is the government's role in regulating uh, morality, the sexual behavior, the mores of the people. So we don't, I mean, we get into the high theory, but what I liked about this course is it shows concretely what this meant for the founders. So, you know, there's something very high and abstract about natural rights, but what this course focuses on is how it all comes to life in this American regime that they founded. There's one of, uh, of the classes, uh, morality and, and virtue, and you and Dr. West discuss that some citizens, the founders expected, would have, would have more uh, assertive values, courage and prudence. Are those two in particular in short supply today? Well, yes. Uh, most emphatically, and in particular, I think, courage um, which, you know, we tend to associate with uh, the battlefield, and, and that's obviously the highest expression because you're risking and potentially sacrificing your life. Uh, now, my understanding is that uh, our armed forces, at least at the level of soldiers, I mean, the higher echelons are going woke, but do display great martial valor. But the, the courage I see more lacking is the one of... Um, well, saying the truth in an age that is filled with lies, that you need uh, assertive citizens to push back. You need ordinary citizens to demonstrate a certain courage in defending their rights. You know, uh, it's pretty easy to proclaim rights. Uh, I think one of the defining traits of America, which comes out of the Declaration of Independence, is what are you going to do when those rights are violated? And my favorite line in the Declaration is the fifth grievance leveled against the king. They say that he has repeatedly dissolved the houses of representatives. Why? For opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. You know, talk is cheap, but in America we're supposed to, in a firm and manly and courageous way, oppose the erosions of our rights. And look, to some extent we do. You know, you could read the COVID situation in one of two ways. On the one hand, it's like, what happened to this country with the lockdowns, the state of emergency, the erosion of civil liberties? On the other hand, you saw that the civic spirit is not dead and that a lot of Americans said to hell with all of this. So it's a mixed bag. But then again, there never was an age of perfect virtue in America. And the founders would be the first to recognize that. <laughs> 
Dr. David Azrad with us. The course, The Real American Founding, now available online.hillsdale.edu. It's David Azarad and Dr. Tom West from Hillsdale College. You were a student of Dr. West during your graduate student days at the University of Dallas and now have the opportunity to work alongside him here at Hillsdale and specifically on this online course. What makes Dr. West unique? What makes his insights special? Why should people tune in to hear him talk about this topic? How much time do you have? Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, 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 I was more than a student. I mean, this man changed my life. Um, I'm Canadian. I came to America to study political philosophy. I, mm-hmm. I had no real interest in America. And then I took Tom's class on uh, the American founding, and uh, I got hooked. And I've been hooked ever since. I mean, he's one of the greatest living scholars on the American founding. Uh, this last book, the one you mentioned, on which the course is based, The Political Theory of the American Founding, that Cambridge Youth University Press published a few years ago, is, is really a, a master summary, a, a, a comp- not summary, a comprehensive interpretation of the founding that also puts it in conversation with all of the various criticisms that have been leveled at the founding by scholars over the years. I mean, he just knows the subject inside out. Uh, and Tom is someone who's courageous, who speaks boldly, who is not afraid, uh, you know, to upset some contemporary pieties. I go back to the thing we, we mentioned a few minutes ago is that You know, he doesn't give you this tame, boring, domesticated founding. Mm -hmm. He gives you the founding in all its grandiose boldness. And uh, he speaks honestly, and that is really a virtue in in short supply. So this combination of intelligence, uh, boldness, and always with a touch of levity. You know, (laughs) he's not one of these uh, people who despairs and gets angry at what's happening in America. I mean, he's spirited and loves this country, but he knows how to laugh, and uh, he's just a wonderful conversationist. Dr. David Azrat is with us. The new course, The Real American Founding, online.hillsdale.edu. Would the founders appreciate the fact that 200-plus years after the founding, we are still discussing, we are still talking about we are still creating these courses like this one and, and, and Americans across the country are are learning, are, are watching, and are continuing this conversation. Yeah, I, I think they would appreciate that. They would appreciate the fact that the country is still here, that it has grown uh, to encompass the whole continent with 50 states, that it has done truly marvelous things. Um, but I think they would also be uh, horrified, have a sense of disbelief at some of the developments in American political thought, uh, the way that their political theory and the Constitution they design is misinterpreted, disregarded. Some of the you know ludicrous things that the Supreme Court has said are in the Constitution that are not. So I think they'd have they would have a, a combination of uh, wonder and disbelief probably. <laughs> One final question for Dr. David Azarad. You, in this course with Dr. West, go beyond the, the famous documents that we all know surrounding the founding and go, go deeper. Other public documents, uh, key laws, state constitutions. What do we learn by digging deeper into what was happening around the time the Constitution was written? 
Yeah, this is another thing that is distinctive about West's approach is that he doesn't leave it at, you know, a lot of works on the founding just focus on the usual dozen or two dozen texts that everyone reads. He really made an effort to dig one level below mm-hmm. at the, you know, the, the not the greatest hits, but the second greatest hits. <laughs> and what it allows him to do is to show how all of this comes to life. You know, if you read the Constitution, the Federalist, and the Declaration of Independence, they never talk in there about the family. Understandably so, because that's not that's not the priority in these documents. But when you start to look at the state level, the state constitutions, the legislation, you saw that the founding era generation obviously gave some thought to how the role of families in a stable political order and that really comes out beautifully. So if you do the 10,000-foot view founding, there's some very important themes that will be missing from your understanding of the Founders of America, which really come out in the conversation uh, Tom West and I had together. All of that, episodes on equality and natural law, rights and consent, foreign and domestic policy, morality and virtue, sex and marriage, property rights and economics, and the founding today. That's all part of the new Hillsdale online course, The Real American Founding, A Conversation with Dr. Thomas West and Dr. David Azarad. Dr. Azarad, thanks so much for joining us here on the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Thank you, Scott. Always a pleasure. Up next, Christopher Caldwell takes us inside American foreign policy and Russia today. I'm Scott Bertram. This is the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Hillsdale College is a small, Christian, classical liberal arts college that operates independently of government funding. And we want you or your son or daughter to apply. At Hillsdale, students grow in heart and mind by studying timeless truths in a supportive community dedicated to the highest things. Hillsdale College costs significantly less than other nationally ranked private liberal arts colleges and receives regular recognition as a best value. And nearly all students receive financial aid. Our robust core curriculum, vibrant student life, an 8-to-1 student-to-faculty ratio make for an education like no other. For more information or to fill out an application, visit hillsdale.edu backslash info. That's hillsdale.edu backslash info. Welcome back to the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. I'm Scott Bertram. You can get an email every time there's a new episode of the program. Go to radiohour.hillsdale.edu, click on subscribe, then enter your email address. That's radiohour.hillsdale.edu. We're joined now by Christopher Caldwell. He is contributing editor at Claremont Review of Books. His most recent book is The Age of Entitlement America Since the 60s. He's on Hillsdale's campus as part of our CCA lecture series on Russia, and we'll be speaking on Russia and American foreign policy today. Christopher, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's begin by talking a little bit about American foreign policy yesterday into today. As you look at the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and into the Biden administration, how would you describe 
any changes in American foreign policy with regards to Russia? Well, I'd say the big bone of contention with Russia, um, possibly since 2004, has been Ukraine. And uh, things hit a crisis point during the Obama administration. The United States supported the overthrow of a pro-Russian government in, uh, in, in Ukraine, um, probably leading Russia to believe that, uh, you know, that, they're, they're, that, that Crimea, where they kept a lot of their, you know, their warm water navy, mm-hmm. was, uh, was endangered. Russia invaded Ukraine, and that has been the main bone of contention. Uh, I think that the Biden administration and the Trump administration, though, uh, had a kind of similar view of it. Although they protested Russia's presence in, in, in Crimea, um, because Crimea is so heavily Russian and Russian sympathizing and Russian speaking, there is a certain equilibrium to having the Russians in, in Crimea. And so they were, they were inclined to let sleeping dogs lie. The Biden administration um, sort of changed course on that. They um, sort of uh, issued an ag- uh, they, they, they took a, a much more aggressive posture. And in last November, uh, they signed an agreement with Ukraine, uh, sort of returning to a sort of foreign policy that had last been really asserted under George W. Bush, which is that Ukraine ought to be in NATO, and that would include Crimea. And that that really caused a lot of conflict um, between the two countries. What's the strategic value of Crimea to Russia, to Ukraine? Why is it such a fulcrum in these conflicts between the two countries? Well, it's always it's just a, an extraordinary um, it's an extraordinarily positioned island. Um, or peninsula, I should say. It juts out right out into the middle of the Black Sea, which is a sort of a triple civilizational boundary or quadruple, if you want to say. It's, you know, uh, Russia borders on it, um, Europe borders on it in, um, in, you know, Bulgaria and Romania. The Middle East borders on it through Turkey, and then it's, it's also a gateway into South Asia. So it's a it's a highly defensible um, uh, uh, port in, 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 in the middle of a real crossroads of clashing civilizations. And, you know, it's sort of like, I don't know, you know, Gibraltar. That's another, mm-hmm. you know. So you kind of want to have it. And Russia has had it for the last 250 years. Um, and in 1954... Um, under Nikita Khrushchev a a year after Joseph Stalin died. Um, Crimea was sort of granted to Ukraine, which makes sense in an administrative way, Mm -hmm. in the same way that it would make sense to have the Statue of Liberty administered by New Jersey instead of New York. Um, And it wouldn't really much matter as long as you're in the same federal system. But when the Soviet Union broke up, then there was a kind of an illogic to Crimea's being in Ukraine. And that's one of the real sticking points that has made, you know, U- Ukraine's independence a little bit more problematic, uh, you know, uh, than other countries that that became independent after the fall of the Berlin Wall. 
talking with Christopher Caldwell, contributing editor at Claremont Review of Books on Russia and American foreign policy today after following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. How would you describe the U.S. response? How do they think about this war? How do we think about this war? Well, as I say, you know, uh, the Biden administration was committed to a kind of maximalist, um, robust NATO strategy. And so the decision in February was to defend Ukraine almost as if it were already a member hmm. of NATO. Um, at first through extraordinarily robust sanctions. Um, and that's a whole story in itself. But it's not just ceasing to buy Russian goods and attempting to get other countries to not buy Russian goods, um, which, is, which is a very, very aggressive way of, of boycotting. But it was also taking the parts of the global economy, taking the global economy bureaucratic structures that the United States either controlled or could influence and ejecting Russia mm -hmm. from them. So, for instance, the United States um, froze um, all of Russia's hard currency assets, which is a which ran into the hundreds of billions of of, of, of dollars. This is, you know, that this is money that Russia keeps in Western institutions to trade with. Mm -hmm. It's Russia's money, which Russia can now not touch. Um, the United States uh, also um, moved to eject Russia from the SWIFT banking system. And that's, the, that's a system of international um, checking and credit card transfers that's used in um, almost all international retail and, 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 and wholesale uh, transactions. It's run out of Belgium by a, by a private company, but still, if you don't have it, you're really in, in a <laughs> terrible disadvantage in, 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 in trading. So the United States has really, has really um, taken financial sanctions to an unprecedented level. Um, and, then, and then the next stage we got to was later in the war when we began really giving Ukraine our most advanced computerized mm -hmm. artillery weapons. I want to talk about each of those yeah. separately. On, on the sanctions themselves, you, you wrote a piece over at the Claremont Review of Books and said that there are these three-pronged sanctions, weaponry, and then a culture war as well. On the sanctions, you argue the threat is posed not to Russia necessarily, but to the U.S. as a custodian of the global economy. How might that come back to harm the U.S.? Well, I don't want to imply that this is not a threat to Russia. I think it is. You know, there have been a lot of um, paradoxical effects of our, our sanctions by um, uh, by limiting Russia's you know ability to sell to Europe we've tightened the um, we've tightened the global energy market and raised the price of, of of oil and gas and and Russia has has benefited from that but in general I think if Russia would like to have these sanctions off as mm -hmm. quickly as it's as it could they're harming them but my point was that um, to use international trading institutions this way is very harmful to us as well. A lot of uh, uh, America's power comes from controlling these institutions. Um, we have what you could call a fiduciary 
responsibility uh, to control these uh, as we control these institutions. That is, you know, as in a, in a in a corporation, we are sort of like bound by the ethics of such an institution, always to remember that the money we are handling is not ours, mm-hmm. but the clients or the and irrespective of how we may feel about them. We have been unable to resist now politicizing these institutions. Now, you may say that's the right thing to do. You may say Russia's really, really terrible and we have to break the rules. But if we break the rules of how we treat international currency reserves, that is the, that is the, uh, well, then we become an untrustworthy custodian of other, of other people's money. And then um, people begin to look for um, alternatives to the dollar um, to do international trading in. Because if, if you're going to trade in dollars, you're going to have to keep your money in the United States, and, and they might seize them. And um, so, so that, I think, is one of the big reasons that, that China and India, to cite only the two largest countries, have been more reluctant to join our efforts than I think we anticipated they would be. Yeah, should, should we have been surprised by that, the reaction by China and by India to those sanctions and the fact that perhaps they are now drawn even somewhat closer to Russia than, than they were previously? Um, in retrospect, we shouldn't have been surprised. Um, but in retrospect, you should never have been surprised because <laughs> you consider things that you weren't thinking about at the time. I think... One of the, you know, I've come to think that one of the things that um, is making China and India uneasy uneasy is the tone of American rhetoric. Because there is an American, there's kind of an American way of financial war, which is first you, 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 you undertake this real big sort of public relations effort. If you, if you like it, you could call it public diplomacy. If you don't like it, you call it propaganda. Mm. But you describe a country as like the worst thing that ever happened to the world as we have done with Russia. And then you get other countries in the world to cut them off and starve their economies. And then you, you, you exert pressure on them that way. I think that given the way we have lately been talking about China, and the way we've lately been talking about India. In China, we talk about the, you know, their mistreatment of the, of the Uyghurs. We describe the, um, their economic system as slave labor. In the, in the case of India, we, um, we attack the way they, um, um, the, the, the culture treats women. We describe um, Narendra Modi, their leader, as a, as a Hindu nationalist. I think both China and India were left feeling that um, that they could be targets of the same sort of like, uh, let's say, denigrate and sanction mm-hmm. type of one-two punch that 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 Russia did, and so they don't they don't want to. They're kind of clinging to one another as as people who have a, a common interest in resisting this type of American. Um, uh, uh, let's say discipline in the in the in the global system. Is China taking lessons, perhaps for the future, w- with regard to Taiwan, with our current foreign policy with regards to Russia? Oh, certainly, certainly they are. Um, you know, I don't know what their intentions on Taiwan are. Um, I think that they will be. Um, you know, on the one hand, they'll be impressed with. Um, 
Russia's ability to withstand sanctions. On the other hand, they'll be impressed with um, America's ability to turn the military tide with our, you know, computerized rocket artillery. And um, so, I mean, it it does take us to a different stage in the in the China Taiwan confrontation. But I'm but I'm I don't know what that stage will be, but I'm mm-hmm. certain that they're paying attention to it. Christopher Caldwell is with us. He's on campus here at Hillsdale, part of our CCA on Russia, talking about Russia and American foreign policy today. Uh, that, that second prong, the weaponry prong, the fact that we are now dealing with, as you mentioned, these advanced, these computerized weapons that are being given to Ukraine, can it still be said that arming allies, as we are and, and others are, still does not equate to to taking part, to participating in the in the combat. Yeah, you know, this is a this is a kind of a philosophical question. Um, I think that arming another country has always been understood as an aggressive act against the country that it's fighting a war in. Perhaps we um, we just we came around to the idea that it was always okay because of the way um, our involvement in the Afghan war against the Soviet Union Mm -hmm. in the late 1970s and early 80s um, worked out. I mean, that was a war in which, um, you know, Russia tried to um, install a, 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 a friendly government. There was a huge guerrilla resistance, which was really, really ferocious, but um, uh, not terribly well armed, um, and and the United States provided stinger missiles to these um, to these tribesmen and 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 trained them in their use, and it was really devastating to Russia's helicopters. Um, and and there wasn't really you know everyone warned that, that this would be an es- escalation, but as it turned out, there was not much that Russia could could do about it. But that doesn't make the that issue go away. And and one thing that's happened since then is we now have, you know, we have computerized um, weapons. We have a degree of artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And you take a, um, you know, uh, uh, a, a weapon and you can perfect it. You can you can hone it to you know to 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 lock in on certain kinds of of Russian targets. And so really, all the killing power is. In, in 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 an act of war is it's mostly done in the in the coding um, mm-hmm. uh, you know in in the coding that's done in some you know in some laboratory in California. It's not the guy who presses the button in Odessa, and so it's a very the Russians are coming to believe that they're they're basically at war with the United States, that it's the United States that's waging war against them with, with Ukraine as a, as a pretext. So, you know, at least to some degree, the, we may be returning to the world of before the, the Soviet Afghan war where, you know, if you arm a, a, a person, if you arm another country, it's understood as just a straightforward act of belligerence. Considering the degree to which the U.S. has been has been uh, supplying weapons to the Ukrainians, Ukrainians, have we committed ourselves to a, a a moral position that that must continue 
into the future as far as needed? Have we given them a sense that you can rely on us to provide you with the weapons needed in this war, and if we stop at some point, we have we have somewhat broken a promise. We've turned our back on on, on, a, on an unspoken agreement. Oh, that's a really that, this is the that is the central question, and it and it's got there are a couple of ways to look at it. One is, you know, everyone is assuming that we're giving these the Ukrainians these wars to defend themselves, mm-hmm. and. Um, if that's the case, you know, it's a, it is an open-ended commitment because the moment we stop them, Russia will win the war. So it means that, you know, the, the cost of this weaponry is vast. I, we, we've spent, there was a $33 billion um, dollar appropriation in the spring. There have been dribs and drabs. I think there was, the, the, and it's now up over 50, 60 billion. But on top of that, we're also funding the, Ukrainian economy to the tune of five to eight billion dollars a month, and so it's a it's a tremendous amount of money um, as long as the Russian threat persists. But something that people don't consider as often is, well, you know, the the these HIMARS rockets, as they are they are called, these are these computerized artillery rockets, which have really given the the uh, helped Ukraine turn the tide in the war. If they succeed, and if Ukraine can push Russia out of the, the, the territory it's conquered, it still doesn't really solve our problem because Ukraine is going to have to defend that territory mm-hmm. for, as, you know, for as long as Russia man, remains hostile. So there's really no logical stopping point to this war, I'm, I'm afraid. It has a, it's taking on a kind of a, a Korean aspect where the likely outcome at the end of it is some tremendously expensive, you know, foreign uh, installation just to hold the status status quo. So you say there's no logical stopping point for this war. Is it incumbent upon us, is it incumbent upon America to continue to try to keep avenues of negotiation open, to continue to try to give Russia and Vladimir Putin a, a, a way out if they wish, a way to save Save, save, save face, if you want to put it in, in, in that manner. Is it, is it our responsibility in this conflict to, to keep that possibility open? I, yes. I, well, you know, it's not necessarily a moral responsibility, but I think that it's a, it's a good negotiating principle when you're talking about a conflict between two nuclear-armed, the two largest nuclear powers in the, in, in, in the world. People... You know, theorists of negotiation, you know, say that people tend to choose among sort of like clearly defined alternatives. So if one of the alternatives is humiliation and the other is um, escalation, you want a third alternative. And that's what theorists of negotiation call an Mm off-ramp. And I'm afraid that, that, that our strategy has been has not been very oriented around off-ramps uh, um, thus far in the war. Christopher Caldwell, he is contributing editor at the Claremont Review of Books. You can read his recent piece from the summer edition on this topic and also his most recent book, The Age of Entitlement, America Since the 60s. He's on Hillsdale's campus as part of our CCA lecture series on Russia. Christopher, thanks so much for joining us here on the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Thanks, Scott. It's always a pleasure. 
Up next, we talk with David Whalen from Hillsdale's English Department about the works of Beatrix Potter. I'm Scott Bertram. This is the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Great books, great people, and great ideas. Knowledge of these things is critical to becoming a well-educated human being. That's why I'd like to tell you about an easy and enjoyable way for you to listen and learn whenever and wherever you want. And that's through the Hillsdale Dialogues. If you haven't heard about the Dialogues, once a week, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn joins radio veteran Hugh Hewitt to discuss topics of enduring relevance. From time to time, they also talk about current events, but always with an eye toward more fundamental truths. And they want you to listen in, to join a conversation like no other. The Hillsdale Dialogues are posted every Friday on podcast.hillsdale.edu. That's podcast.hillsdale.edu or wherever you get your audio. We're back. On the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour, I'm Scott Bertram. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter for updated program information and guest details. We're there at Hillsdale Radio. We're joined today by Dr. David Whelan. He is Associate Vice President for Curriculum and Professor of English at Hillsdale College. Dr. Whelan, thanks for joining us once again. Oh, thank you for having me. Asking the question today, why read Beatrix Potter? She is, <laughs> of course, a children's book author, but as we begin... Tell the audience a bit more about who she was. Right, right. Well, uh, Beatrix Potter may not be a name that people think they have to conjure with. Uh, it's just some kid's uh, author who, who really cares. Uh, of course, that's true. She is just a kid's author, uh, but I think people should care quite a bit. Beatrix Potter is uh, really remarkable. She was uh, a woman born halfway through the 19th century English. Uh, died uh, in the middle of World War II. Um, So she lived a long life around the turn of the 19th and 20th century. Um, She really grew up in a kind of uh, affluent, fairly uh, upper middle class uh, family in London. Uh, uh, Did not have any children of her own, but she got to know, she was very friendly with children and got to know the children of her friends and associates and kind of stumbled into story writing and publishing. In fact, her first book published was the famous one, mm-hmm. Peter Rabbit, and, and that was self-published. It was turned down, I think, something like six times. She tried to get it published. It was turned down six times, so she self-published, and it went like wildfire. So then uh, publishers picked her up, and uh, uh, she was publishing for the rest of her life. Um, but the the uh, the her going into writing was kind of a surprise, a, certainly a surprise to her, <laughs> and it was a surprise to everyone around her. She didn't need to write; she didn't need to earn money, and uh, she had no sort of strange or bizarre gift with children. But what she did have was a combination of a kind of keen eye, a keen observational eye. Uh, for the world around her. In fact, uh, she, she, do you know that um, early in her life she developed a reputation for mycology for yes. being an expert in fungi? So uh, even a scientist's kind of keen observational eye, but also as applied to, to uh, what 
uh, moved children, what children noticed, and the, the kinds of experiences that children have when they, as it were, bump their way around in the world. So anyway, that, that's what um, uh, uh, was in some ways behind her sitting down to write these stories. In fact, they originally, in a lot of cases, were letters to the children of her friends, and so she would just tell a little story, draw little pictures, and then later on she thought, you know, I think maybe I can make something out of that. I want to come back to the illustrations mm-hmm. in a moment, uh, but Beatrix Potter was a, a great student of classic Western mm-hmm. European fairy tales, Brothers yes. Grimm, yep. Aesop's Fables. How was she able to take the best elements of, of those stories and infuse them into her work? Right. Well, she... she um, Interestingly enough, her favorite story was um, uh, the Tailor of Gloucester, which is based on a, a traditional uh, uh, a traditional English fairy tale. So, so you're right; she was very much uh, informed, and her imagination was infused with the inherited tradition of of Western um, uh, fairy tales and, and children's lore. Uh, so, so it, it's not it's not so much how did she integrate that as what in her can you discern that isn't in some way <laughs> informed by that fairy tale tradition. Um, she, you, you can see it in the premise, so to speak. Premise is not the right word to use for any fiction of this sort, but, but I'll use it for convenience. Uh, the, the premise or a premise in her work is that the ordinary world is undergirded, undergirded by a, a, a kind of um, lively and um, um, animated um, human intensity. What do I mean by that? What I mean is what looks like an ordinary village street is indeed an ordinary village street, but the cats are having an adventuresome life as they skitter across the road. The rats are having an adventuresome life as they crawl around behind your walls. Uh, <laughs> the squirrels are having an adventuresome life as they're uh, digging for nuts and harassing other n- nearby uh, uh, animals. So, so that, that, that all of this vibrant life is to be noticed, not simply to be passed by. And if you think about the world of the fairy tale, it's the same. It, you, what you have is the ordinary world shot through with a kind of vibrant liveliness that most of us, most of the time, are pretty obtuse to. Talking with Dr. David Whalen about Beatrix Potter, Peter Rabbit, these illustrations, which we can't show you mm-hmm. on the show. Uh, are wonderful and beautiful. You alluded to this earlier. She was well known before writing children's literature of being this great uh, <laughs> scientist, not necessarily right. a scientist, but uh, she studied right. fungi yes. and drew these very detailed illustrations right. of mushrooms and, and fungi. Is it that, that realism, that commitment to, to making these cats and rats and squirrels look like cats and rats and squirrels really do? Is that the uniqueness that shines through in her illustrations, the realism? Yes, it, yes, it very much is. Um, and again, maybe that sounds counterintuitive because aren't her rabbits wearing little uh, uh, waistcoats <laughs> and, and, and aren't her cats wearing uh, boots or something? Uh, and the answer is yes, there, there is that human touch, but that's part of the whimsy because the rabbit wearing a waistcoat really does uh, look not not photographically she does have a style mm-hmm, mm-hmm. she she isn't simply trying to now now when she's illustrating uh, fungi that is very much uh, uh, an attempt at pictorial accuracy 
um, um, her children's book illustrations are accurate without a kind of punctilious or anxious effort at detailed precision. Uh, there is a, a, a slightly diffuse style to them, uh, but, but they never depart from reality. Uh, the, her, her illustrative style is in service of the subject. Unlike a lot of children's illustrators today, she does not use her subject as an opportunity to serve or express mm. or expose her style. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. So, yeah. so her style is in service of the rabbit she's drawing, uh, not the other way around. We've talked previously on uh, on one of these episodes about children's literature. If it is not entertaining, if it does not make it, an adult happy <laughs> while reading it, throw it away. Exactly. So what is it about Beatrix Potter, Peter Rabbit, or other works that that both children and adults can find interesting and delightful? You know, I've, that, that's such an excellent question. I've, I've thought a great deal about that. Why is it that adults so often enjoy uh, Beatrix Potter. By the way, if an adult doesn't, you know, the problem is clearly with the adults, <laughs> not with Beatrix. Uh, uh, but but well, why is it in so many of the stories, it, it's not a, necessarily a tale of the highest adventure, right? What 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 is it that, and and I I finally I think I finally saw what's what, what why it is uh, that that adults enjoy it as much, uh, maybe more even than children, and that is in Potter's works you have a, a very rare and beautiful balance of clear-eyed vision of the world and its folly, mm-hmm. all the silly, hubristic ways that we go wrong, of course, uh, often expressed in the uh, life of these animals, but nevertheless, it's a world of human folly, and yet it's beloved. She loves even her characters who are selfish, who are greedy, who are over-talkative, who are disobedient, who are uh, garrulous or nagging. And, uh, the uh, Squirrel Nutkin bugging the owl darn near dies and pretty much earned uh, his near-fatal experience. However, even while he's being a complete uh, um, uh, pestiferous jerk, you can tell the, the authorial voice is fundamentally benevolent toward him, and so are we, the readers. So to put it in, in a word, it's this magnificent combination of clear-eyed vision mm-hmm. of the world and its follies and love for it anyway. Let's take Peter Rabbit for those who have not read or perhaps have simply forgotten a bit sure. from many years ago. Where do we see the themes in Peter Rabbit's uh, mirror that, this, this admiration for the world despite its folly or because of its folly? Right. Well, yeah. <laughs> there, there isn't a character. I, this may be a little bit of an exaggeration, but there isn't a character in Peter Rabbit who isn't touched by folly. Um, uh, Mr. McGregor is himself kind of a, uh, he's a little bit silly. He's a little over and he's, too enthusiastic in his attempt to keep his garden 
clean and clear of of rodents and, or, or rabbits and and others you know come on you're a gardener you're there th- these things are going to happen but you know like many of us are you know the, your hobby really becomes a kind of miniature obsession and you become very anxious about it and that's mr mcgregor well peter is disobedient um uh, his folly is a kind of um a cavalier attitude with regard to rules i mean his mother reminds him that that his peter's father was served to mr mcgregor in a pie uh, again these stories they're not <laughs> sentimental mm-hmm. there is life and death here <laughs> you know? but peter said i don't care i'm just going to go in there anyway so um uh, uh peter is a little headstrong and a little willful and very lucky very fortunate in certain ways and in in that way peter is um kind of the the archetypal kid right disobedient and really lucky i mean come on we all know we all know that it's a miracle any of us ever live (sighs) to grow up we all should have died a hundred times and we all broke so many rules you know uh it's a miracle anyone lives and and that's really uh embodied in that tale just perfectly is there a particularly good place to start in the works of beatrix potter I think you mentioned it already. Um, the The first story she published was Peter Rabbit, and that is, I think, justly um, uh, uh, the best place to start. It's justly uh, famous, or the most famous of her works. Uh, you don't have to read them all in the order that she wrote them, but it's a good start. I think it's that, and then Squirrel Nutkin, and then maybe somewhere in there is the Taylor of Gloucester. I don't remember the sequence, but but you you don't have to begin anywhere. But if you do want To begin someplace, just begin with Peter. Dr. David Whalen, Associate Vice President for Curriculum and Professor of English at Hillsdale College, talking about Beatrix Potter. Dr. Whalen, thanks for joining us on the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Very much my pleasure. Thank you, Scott. That will wrap up this edition of the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour. Our thanks to Dr. David Azarad from Hillsdale in D.C. as we preview the new Hillsdale online course, The Real American Founding. Christopher Caldwell with us. He was on Hillsdale's campus, part of a CCA lecture series on Russia. And David Whalen from Hillsdale's English department on the works of Beatrix Potter. The radio-free Hillsdale Hour is recorded at the studios of WRFH, the student-run radio station at Hillsdale College. Remember, you can hear new episodes every week on this station. You also can find extended versions of some of our interviews or listen anytime to the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour podcast. Find it at radiohour.hillsdale.edu or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Hillsdale Radio or find us on Facebook. The assistant producer of the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour is Nicholas Alfonso. To find out more about Hillsdale College, head to hillsdale.edu. Until next week, I'm Scott Bertram, and this has been the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour.